rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Hello, this is Bob Hutchins, and welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. Today, we have a very, very, very special guest. I've been trying to get him uh, on the phone here for a little while, and I've finally succeeded. Uh, I have Pete Enns on the phone with me today, and I'm excited about this conversation. Pete uh, is a pretty humble guy, because if you've listened to his podcast and you've read anything that he's written, he doesn't talk a ton about himself So I'm going to do that for him here in a second, uh, because it's important for us to understand uh, the context of Pete's journey, uh, also his education, his background, because as we dive into some of these things, uh, I really want us all to grasp uh, some of the the depth uh, of where where Pete has been. So Pete, Peter Enns, PhD uh, uh, from Harvard University, is the Abram S. Clemens Professor of Biblical Studies at Eastern University in Pennsylvania. He's taught undergraduate seminary and doctoral courses at numerous other schools, including Princeton Theological Seminary, Harvard Divinity School, and Temple University. N speaks and writes regularly to diverse audiences about the intersection of the ancient setting of Bible and contemporary Christian faith. He's also the host of the popular podcast, The Bible for Normal People. He blogs at pdens.com, and he's written, edited, and contributed to over 20 books, including The Sin of Certainty, The Bible Tells Me So, and most recently, How the Bible Actually Works. He resides in suburban Philadelphia with his wife, Susan. Pete, welcome to Rumors of Grace. Thanks. Wow, that was a good introduction. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty interesting. I, I, I don't know. I was, I, I thought, whatever. So, hey, I've, I've done some stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah, nice. yeah we'll have, we even have some applause here for you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, Pete, uh, where, where are you calling from right now? Are you in Pennsylvania? I am. I'm southeastern Pennsylvania. I'm outside of Philadelphia, about 45 minutes, and I'm in my house. Fantastic. And uh, yeah. I know in scheduling this, we had to postpone a couple of days. You, you had a little bit of an injury. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty, pretty good. I, you know, we had like 150 degree weather around here. Philadelphia is in the Delaware Valley, which Mm. means it's a valley, which means the humidity just hangs there. So, you know, when it's 95 degrees out, it feels like 108. And Mm. it was just, we had had it. We have window units. We don't have central air. I was putting a window unit in my dining room window, which is on the first floor and I'm dripping sweat and it's not a heavy thing, but it's covered with my sweat. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, Pete, you could lose a grip on this real quickly. And no sooner did I say that, the thing was like out of my hands and heading for the driveway. And I tried to, I reached down to grab it. Mm. And apparently I tore something in my shoulder, mm. which is not a good feeling. No. But the worst feeling is seeing $300 crash on the driveway. That was even worse. <laughs> but, uh, so your shoulder, torn ligaments, just the $300 crashed on the driveway. Yeah, it's been a great <laughs> week. Well, thank you for, for, for pushing through your pain and calling me today. This is awesome. Oh, sure. Um, I might even be more loopy with pain medication. I get in. <laughs> That's what I was hoping. I was hoping. Yeah, yeah. 
So Pete, uh, talk to me just a little bit about um, your journey. I mean, as, as I read that bio, I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I don't know that I've talked to anyone in this whole theological, biblical world with a pedigree like yours, um, but yet... For those of us who listen to the Bible for normal people, you and Jared, I mean, it's very, very down to earth, and it's you know you're the you're the dad next door that you want to hang out and have a beer with. So talk to me about you know the Pete. How did you go from um, you know your childhood to deciding to go into this world of extreme academia? to hosting this popular podcast. Can you give me your journey maybe in just a few minutes? Sure. And, you know, I think about that too, because, you know, you try to recall the influences and, you know, the narrative sometimes gets touched up a little bit. You know, I think, oh no, that was another thing that happened to me that made me do this. So, but I think, you know, I've always, so this is the version today, which is 90% of other versions of people have heard this story before. But I, I grew up, I think, just always sort of a curious person wanting to know how things work and asking questions. And and that sort of stuck with me. And I think probably a couple of early factors was I had a conversion experience. I was raised Lutheran. Mm. And I was confirmed Lutheran in uh, seventh grade. and But I had a conversion experience in high school. Mm. And that sort of marked off the beginning of an intentional Christian walk. And I think, I, I know I was always so curious, but I think, you know, long and short of it is I went to a Christian college, um, had a really good experience there, but I came out of that and, and I left, I graduated. And then a few months later, I was with a friend of mine who had gone to another Christian college. And I'm going to say he went to more of a fundamentalist school. And there's a reason why I'm pointing that out. I didn't, I went to a more of a mainstream evangelical college. And uh, we went to our high school's annual Thanksgiving Day football game. Mm-hmm. This is after the four years after we left high school. And we met there another friend of ours who had gone to a state university and was a philosophy major and at the time was an atheist. And I remember these two friends were talking about God, talking about existence and arguments and stuff like that. And I remember just thinking that I can't even begin to contribute anything to this. And I felt sort of ashamed because I had gone to a Christian college and I sort of majored in baseball. I didn't really think about things too deeply. I did think about things, but I didn't take advantage of things I could have taken advantage of when I was there. So that got me to reading a lot. And I spent the next three years working different kinds of jobs and just reading the Bible many, many times over and just anything that interested me, anything that looked like it might be something that would help me, things about theology or where the Bible came from and this and that. And that led me eventually to seminary. So I went to seminary for four years. And in the middle of that time, I realized that, I mean, I went to seminary not to be a pastor because that would have been a disaster. I did have a summer internship at a church, Mm -hmm. which was very helpful to me because I learned a lot. And I also learned how much I love studying and reading more than anything else that you do as a pastor. And you don't do that as a pastor anyway. You don't have time. So that really just solidified my my career path, I guess, as continuing to be intellectually curious and getting paid for it. Right. So, you know, I, I've, after 
four years, I went to graduate school and I landed on Old Testament studies, mm. what they call in universities ancient Near Eastern studies, because it's the ancient Near East. Now we call it the Middle East, but when you're talking about antiquity, you call it the Near East as opposed to the Far East, all that kind of stuff. And um, I landed on Old Testament study because, I, I mean, I was going through seminary and I thought maybe philosophy or theology or church history or New Testament, but I landed on Old because about halfway through, I had a couple of teachers who I'll mention, Tremper Longman, who is a friend of mine uh, who just retired from Westmont College, and uh, Ray Dillard, who um, passed away in 1993. And they were professors of mine, and they would say things like, listen, the Old Testament makes up about three quarters of your Bible. You need to know what to do with it. And that really was an eye-opening moment for me because I thought, you know, that's true. You know, the, the Jesus part is more obviously applicable, but, you know, what about the laws? What about these prophecies? What about these stories that don't have much to do with our lives? What do you do with this section of the Bible theologically? And so that got me interested in that. And then, you know, I applied to a few graduate schools, got into a few, and I, I chose one that I thought was a good fit for me. It happened to be Harvard. And uh, I spent five years there, and it, it was a, a great experience for me because I didn't have anyone reining me in. Mm. I could just think, and it was just—it was a. Be- I, I still look back at those times as very fond times to mm. be able to turn things over and over again, and not be too worried about coming up with the right answer before class starts, mm. as you might as a teacher. So, mm. um, and that you know that was that was a beautiful part of the journey, and that's where I really began to see, and I'm not going to go on and on about this, but that's where I really began to see the value of, let's just call it non-evangelical ways of looking at the Bible mm. and how they've been sort of portrayed as the enemy. But the things the, they have theories that make tremendous, even intuitive sense once you start looking at it without sort of a defensive mindset. And that came through to me. I mean, within two months of my first semester, I saw the big picture and I said, I get it. So I, let know, me, I know why l- people are attracted to that. Yeah, yeah let, me inter- let me interject this. Was that, um, how, how far along or how old were you in your journey? Because it, I know in listening to your podcast and actually in listening to um, your daughter who was featured on the podcast, mm-hmm. it seems as though there was a time that you remained in that um, conservative evangelical kind of uh, construct of looking at the world and interpreting scripture was, right. was that during your time at Harvard after, I mean, what, put, well, put that a timeline was, yeah, for a, us. That the timeline is I, I was in seminary from 25 through 29. And then mm-hmm. from 29 to 34, I was uh, doing my doctoral work, but then I came back to teach at the seminary that taught me. Mm. And a couple things, you know, happened and that are very important, I think, at least for my own journey, for me to understand and myself understanding, is that when I was a student, this is Westminster Theological Seminary, which is a conservative Presbyterian seminary outside of Philadelphia. And when I was there, there was there was a move to be more engaging of the world around you and not mm-hmm. defensive. Mm-hmm. That's how I was educated. And so mm-hmm. going to Harvard for me was like, yeah, it's, it's a big move, but at least I didn't show up defensive. Like I have to defend my faith and things like that. I came mm-hmm. exploring. 
But in retrospect, the time that I was there as a student was um, an unusual moment in the history and evolution of the school. So when I came back to teach, I thought I would sort of just continue that tone that I had had when I was a student. But it was during that time that for, for a variety of reasons, there's no, nobody has any interest in getting into, but for a variety of reasons, there was a move like a retraction coming back to more of a fundamentalist origin of the school. And I and others were sort of caught up in the middle of that. Mm. And I think another factor too, Bob, that, that didn't become clear to me until a little bit later was how much I had really changed and shifted. Mm. You know, I saw it as my thinking as sort of an evolution from those early years of seminary that had a strong continuity with this past. Mm-hmm. And I think it did. But on the other hand, there are places where it might not have. And I think I came to sort of realize that over time. And 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 that's why, you know, those things uh, really messed me up in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and that gets into what you said before about my daughter and some comments that she made about growing up a conservative household psychologically, a lot of what was happening to me, and I know people listening can relate to this, there's no question, that my thinking was in a certain place, but the social setting in which I lived was not there. Mm. And so I kept living with this tension. And I think, you know, my children sort of picked up on that. And, you know, you can be afraid of being called out by people, Mm. you know, like pastors in churches. I I can't tell them what I think about this because I'll be ostracized. Right. And that can lead people to continue playing that social game Mm -hmm. in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And I was doing those things without realizing I was doing it. It took me about a year after leaving to understand that dynamic. And I don't mind saying with the help of a therapist, mm. you know, it just, it was, it was, a, it is difficult. Yeah. In other words, I didn't come to where I am now easily. Was that, like, oh, I'll hang all that yeah, stuff. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. Was that, like did your family and your marriage and that suffer from that or were they behind you a hundred percent? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. And they were behind me. Uh, and I know, I know that's not necessarily the norm because mm. I've talked to many, many people saying, I can't talk to my wife or husband about this mm. because they'll blow up. And that's a different kind of situation. But when I left Westminster, my, my kids were, I guess, oh, I don't know how old were they? They were um, like 18 to 13 or something like that. And they were all like, it's about time, dad. That place is crazy. <laughs> you know, it clearly was that you're kicking the dog when you come home. It's just, you needed to leave. And my wife was, was very supportive too. And in part because she was never driven by academia at all. Right. right. So, so in other words, she, she, you know, when I would tell her, you know, when I in graduate school saying, you know, it's, it's possible that the patriarchs might not have lived. It might, they might be stories or, you know, it's pretty clear that, Isaiah was written at three different points in time. That's what most scholars think. That wouldn't phase her at all because that's, you know, her faith was not one that had to have like this intricate intellectual scaffolding to hold it up, Mm -hmm. which I think is a gift, not a problem. Mm -hmm. 
and I did not have that gift. <laughs> I had the problem, you know. So um, yeah, so th- we didn't have those kinds of tensions, and 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 I th- even like with extended family, you know, we don't have awkward moments of Thanksgiving. Uh, although we had to, we did leave churches, yeah. and for us that was a social context that we lost, and it was hard to sort of leave churches and yeah, we'll keep in touch, but you don't. And to see 20 years later, you know, so-and-so that used to play with my daughter got married and we didn't know it. Yeah. Of course we didn't know it. We lost that social contact. Yeah. And I, and I think just for clarity, for those of us who, who have been through similar things and or who are in the middle of it or questioning, uh, at the end of the day, if, what I hear you saying is you got to the point where you could no longer worship the fourth member of the Trinity, which a lot of churches have, which is the Bible. In other words... The 800-pound gorilla in this conversation and all conversations, I'm sure, is the inerrancy of Scripture. If that's your construct and you believe the Bible is perfect, that God wrote every word, um, then you have a certain way of looking at the world and the Bible and God and people um, that's very different than where you came to, I think. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Yeah, and I do. Th- I think you're right in how you put that, that if you look at the Bible a certain way, you have, you have a way of looking at life and God and faith and other people. I also want to suggest it's the other way around. I think what you bring into the discussion of the Bible is already informed by how you look at the world. Absolutely. Maybe in a more black and white way or how you think of God Mm -hmm. in ways you might not even be aware of. And that sort of gets downloaded into this book, which we read in ways that support ways we already think. And I don't mind saying that's where I am. And I, I've been sort of coming to terms with that. And I have come to terms with that over the past you know, number of years where, you know, I read the Bible in such a way that will not do complete violence to my experiences. Mm. You know, I, in other words, I don't believe that God is vindictive and just can't wait to kill us in the next move, even though you have those moments in the Bible itself. I don't think those portray God in God's fullness. And a lot of that has to do with my experience and also maybe traditions that I've come to know over the past 10, 15 years. So, I mean, I think, I think who we are as people affects how we think of God, how we think of the Bible. Mm-hmm. It doesn't start with the Bible. Some inerrantists will say it starts with the Bible, but it doesn't. It starts with you as a person and then how you bring the Bible into that. Yeah, I've heard, I, I don't know who said it. I don't know if it was Augustine or some great theologian. You can tell me, I'm sure, is, is the way that we see and understand God really tells us more about ourselves than it does about God. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's a hard thing to stomach for some people, but it's true. Yeah, it is. And But, you know, once you are your eyes are open to that and you fully embrace it, then it makes total sense because— You've had people to talk to, and I know I have, when you start talking about the love and grace and mercy of, of, of a divine being, there's that person or people who will always raise their hand and say, yeah, but God is righteous, and Jesus said, go and sin no more, and he will come and judge the earth. And then you look at this person's life, and you say, this, guy's, this person is pretty angry and vindictive and has a hard time with forgiveness. And mm-hmm. you see that in their view of God. That, that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah. And, and again, it's an interesting chicken and egg question, you know, which came first, the view of God or the personality? Mm. And um, maybe we don't have to figure that out. Maybe exactly. there's a little bit of both. You know, we're mm-hmm. complex people, but 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, they're right, you know, in the sense that, yeah, but the Bible, okay, how do you know God's merciful mm-hmm. and just and forgiving? Mm-hmm. Well, I read it in the Bible. Yeah, there are other things in the Bible we'll read. Why don't you take those things seriously, too? And I think that's a good question. But for me, it comes it comes back to that question of whether no one does everything the Bible says. No one believes everything the Bible says. We're always making decisions. We're discerning whether we should keep slaves and treat them as subhumans, as the book of Exodus puts it. Right. We discern that and say, no, we're not going to do that. And we have reasons for it because we, you know, we don't think it's right or, you know, we believe in Jesus, but you don't have to be a Christian. You can be a Jew and say, we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. We're always discerning scripture, what's valid, what remains, what carries over. And I think that's just a natural part of theology. Now, an inerrantist, a strict inerrantist won't accept that. And they'll, they'll argue with us and say, well, you can't accept part of the Bible. You have to accept all of it. I think, look at the history of theology. People are expecting, are, are accepting parts of things all the time or rereading things because they make no sense to them in their moment, in their context. That's just, I mean, I think the Bible is beautiful that way. Inerrancy actually sells it short, in my opinion. It becomes sort of a rule book yes. instead of a source for our, and I'm going to say theological imagination, mm-hmm. our theological creativity which is much of the history of Christian theology. There are creative exercises in connecting this ancient faith with an ancient text at a, at a time and place that the biblical writers could never remotely have imagined. That's right. That's it's our right. job to put those things together. Well, let's jump well, off. That's a great segue. Let's start with some questions. Um, I've, I've got several. I know we won't get to them all, but I'm going to throw some questions out. You tell me, you know, your thoughts on it. We can riff on that a little bit. But the first one is, um, what book or passage of the Bible uh, do you have the most trouble with and why? Oh, hmm. I think, I mean, that's that's changed over time. Yeah, I guess, okay, here's the thing. I don't, on one level, I don't have trouble with anything because how I, how I've come to understand the Bible. Exactly. You know, if they're, you know, book of Joshua has a lot of violence in it, but I look at that and say, well, these are ancient portrayals of God. I don't think God actually wants you to go kill people and take their land. They did. And I, and I'm fine with that because that's how they're perceiving and understanding and relating to the God that they believe in because we're living in a tribal iron age culture. And this is what you do. If anything, it pushes me to think, okay, well, what do we do today? Well, how do we meet God in our daily lives today? given that it's today and not yesterday. So I don't I don't really have those kinds of problems with the Bible because I've learned to sort of deconstruct it. Having said that, um, I just recently, just because I wanted to, I just read Second Corinthians. And the thing that strikes me there is I almost got tired of reading it by the time I got to the end. It's a little bit of a confusing mess because it's got, people say sometimes like multiple patches of Paul's letters that were sort of combined into one, so sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. But Paul is really very concerned about defending his honor. Mm. And he gets really passive-aggressive in places and almost like a shaming kind of defense Mm. (laughs) of, of how he 
looks at himself vis-a-vis the church of Corinth. And, and that makes me uncomfortable in part because, and I think we all have no religious leaders, perhaps we've, we've met in our lives who are sort of second Corinthians kinds of pastors or professors or whatever. And I don't like that. And then I really don't like seeing that in the new Testament, (laughs) you know, but Paul's a person too, right? He's a complex character. And, and I'm not sure if we're supposed to read Second Corinthians and say, wow, what a great ministry model here. Let's just do what Paul did. Maybe we're supposed to say, yeah, poor guy seems to have been under a lot of stress. But I mean, that's, I just, I didn't get much enjoyment out of reading that. And I get enjoyment out of reading basically anything in the Bible. So mm. maybe that's it. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I was talking to Brad Jerzak the other day on a on on one of my last episodes. And mm. uh, one of the things he was saying, and you talk about, reading these passages from different perspectives, he said, you know, specifically about the book of Joshua and violence. He was, I don't know if you've, you've heard him say this, but he said he had a real trouble with that book as well. And it wasn't until he talked to his mentor, one of his Eastern Orthodox priests or, or fathers, who said, uh, Brad, that book has nothing to do with God. It's all about how people think that God endorses violence when he doesn't. He says there's a cipher. That there's a pass, mm-hmm. there's a cipher in Joshua and the cipher is when uh, they run into this angelic being who's outside of Jericho and says, you know, uh, who whose side have you come on? Are you on their side or ours? And this person who's supposedly representing God uh, or an angel or the armies of the Lord said, uh, uh, neither I don't support either. I'm not here yeah. to take sides. I'm here to represent God, which is a totally I'm on the thing. Lord's side. Yeah, that's and one he's, of the best lines in the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he, Brad was saying that's the key to understanding Joshua. It's if you if you look at it through that lens, then all of what happened that they ascribed to God, uh, like you said, was their understanding. But it wasn't right. truly God saying these things. It was their mm-hmm. understanding of God. So um, that I thought that was an interesting perspective, kind of goes. And I think what what's helpful about that, Bob, is for people who are maybe struggling with these passages. Inerrancy is not the normal way of looking at the Bible in the history of the church. Mm. Even though you have people like Augustine, who would talk about the Bible has no errors, but he's not speaking as a modern person. There, the Bible is reliable to lead you and guide you. And what Brad said to you about that passage, what chapter is it in chapter five, I mm-hmm. think, but mm-hmm. it's, it's early on. So, um, you know, that is something that I think Augustine could say to and say, well, that's, that's not an error. The, the Bible is inerrant, even if the Bible gives us portrayals of what God is like from an ancient point of view, that doesn't make it an error. It's, it's really a modern mentality that sort of says you know, everything in it has to be completely an accurate portrayal of everything. And the problem with that is that you have diverse portraits of God within the Old Testament and then with the New, and you have diverse takes on Israel's history or on the life of Jesus. You don't have the same thing being said. And there are, here's my point, for, for those who are more wedded to inerrancy, because of their upbringing or because of their own conclusions, but maybe they're becoming a little bit uncomfortable with it for a variety of reasons. There are traditions out there that get that. Mm. And there are completely different models for reading the Bible. Orthodoxy is one. And the diverse tradition of Judaism 
is another. Not all not all Jews are in the same place, just like all Christians mm-hmm. are not in the same place. They differ. We have different varieties from very conservative to very liberal. Jews have that too. But there is more of a tendency in the history of Judaism to accept the fact that the Bible can be debated with. Mm-hmm. And they have a whole history called the Halakhic tradition. It's It's examining what it means to live by this book, where the discussions are very broad and they come to some very surprising conclusions for some, mm. you know, for some today looking at it. And I, I just think those are great models for us to think about the Bible. It's, you know, if anything is, I think is important to get across is that the strict inerrantist view is not the norm. It's not one that Paul held. It's not one that Jesus held. It's not one that any of the biblical writers held that I can see, but it's one that, satisfies certain modern inclinations. Mm. And people have, people have said this too, and I, this is a really good insight. I did not come up with this, but you know, with the reformation and the beginning of biblical authority that rose up at a time in Europe that is concurrent with the rise of the scientific method Mm. where you can get certainty and you can get fact by analyzing something closely. Mm. which works really well when you've got a telescope in your hand and you've got, you know, math, <laughs> you're calculating orbit, right? I'm not sure how well it works when you're dealing with a creator who is infinite. Mm. And therefore, mystery is the first word that should be coming out of our mouth. Well, what and you're, scripture I'm, encourages that. Yeah, well, what you're saying then uh, is actually the opposite of what is happening today. In other words, what you're saying is an inerrant fundamentalist absolute um, stance uh, is actually a modern uh, view, whereas they would then accuse you of being a progressive and a modernist and a liberal. It's almost flipped, uh, is what you're really saying. If you look at it historically and from a... uh, true historical uh, theological perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the rise of the modern world has given us ways of looking at history and ways of reading texts that actually gave birth to Christian fundamentalism mm-hmm. and evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And the irony, like you said, is, is that, you know, the great enemy of fundamentalism is modernist Christianity, they sometimes call Christianity that's beholden to the modern world. Well, that's exactly the problem with fundamentalism, because they still have a modern view of what the Bible is and what the Bible should act like. It should be a book of facts. You know, you've, you've got, let's say, I mean, I, I, don't using the, I, I don't like using the terms liberal or fundamentalist because they don't mean much these days. Right. But you know what I mean? Sort of, you, you take the extremes and you read Genesis chapter 1. And a liberal might say, well, okay, here's the Bible. It's the word of God. It's got to be true. And you read Genesis 1, you say, I, I know my science. This didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the Bible is a pack of lies. Mm-hmm. The fundamentalists will say, well, listen, this is the Bible. Everything in it has to be true and factual. Therefore, I don't care what science says. I'm going to stick with the Bible. Right. They're polar opposite positions rooted in the same exact philosophy, which is, any book worthy of being called the Word of God is going to act in a certain way, which is give us precision. 
and not confuse us with having different opinions. So there are no contradictions. There's a, there are only apparent contradictions because you're too blinded by sin to see. And everything else is everything else is fake news. Everything else is fake. Exactly right. No, that you're exactly right. And maybe they're even saying that now. I don't know, but that's everything else is fake news. Well, the cognitive dissonance that that happens with that type of thing is you either double down and it just, you know, it's confirmation bias or you have to come to a new conclusion, which you did and many of us have, and that's heresy. So that's where you find yourself when you hold to an an inerrant uh, view of Scripture, uh, again, in my opinion. I'm sure you agree. Uh, Unless you find another community where where they don't call that heresy, but the post-traumatic stress stuff hangs in there, doesn't it? Oh, yes, very much so. It doesn't go away. All right, let's move on to another question then. Um, All right. I I asked a couple people what they would would love to to ask you, and here's one that (laughs) I I think is really, really creative, uh, but I think it's also honest. Is Jesus really as, quote, enlightened for his time as progressives usually like to believe? Or was he along the lines of fringe rabbinic traditions of the time who would have had Midrash he was affected by or built on? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I, you know, the way it's phrased, I would lean much more heavily to the second way of looking at it, which is Jesus was a Jew and he fit in that world as, let's say, a skilled teacher who has behind him not just the old, what we call the Old Testament, but Jewish tradition, which has had a habit of being very creative in working through problems of the Bible. Mm. Um, you know, so, so when Jesus debates law with the Pharisees, He's just doing what Pharisees do. Right. He's just giving his take. I think what, I don't know if enlightenment is, enlightened is the right word, but, you know, at least according to the gospel stories, what irritated the religious leaders isn't so much that Jesus debated law, but he won. <laughs> and he made the religious leaders look foolish sometimes. Mm. And also Jesus would tend to sort of, at least, especially in the Gospel of John, make himself the referent point for what things mean. Mm. So that's a good way to probably get yourself killed. And I don't know if that's enlightened or not. I think it's more prophetic, let's call it. Mm. Mm. You know, so, so yeah, I, you know, I don't think that, um, I mean, I've said this to people, I've probably written about it someplace. I don't think you can find a good theology for why America needs to let refugees land on our shores from the New Testament. Right. I think we should. <laughs> I definitely think we should, but that's not rooted in the Bible. I can find Bible verses that I can interpret in such a way to be compatible with that, and I, I think just we do that all the time. No one's amused with that. But I don't think my sense of, of justice necessarily comes from Bible passages. It might come from the larger Christian trajectory over history, which has tried to say things about the disenfranchised, mm. right? Mm. But yeah, but in the Old Testament, we're dealing with a theocracy. We're dealing with a, a land that that is a religious place, and America isn't. We're not a Christian nation, and we can't expect the government to do 
something because the Bible says it. That's Christendom talking, and mm. we're living in a post-Christendom world. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. So, so your answer then would be, uh, and I guess the, the the source of this question is, I think many times uh, growing up, I know I have, you have this image of Jesus being the Son of God, the perfect, un, you know man, God, man who never sinned. And when he was on the earth, he kind of floated around and he, people were just in awe of everything he said. And he was performing these miracles and, you know, changed the world and, you know, ascended, uh, crucified, dead, rose, ascended to heaven. But yet what I hear you saying uh, is that he would have not have been necessarily uh, stand out amongst others in the sense of he was doing the Jewish thing that Jewish teachers did, and he, no, yeah, yeah. he he was being who he was in his culture, um, uh, unlike, uh, much like many other Pharisees and teachers of the law and, 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 and early, quote, radicals that were quite common at the time, right? Yeah, I, I think so, too. He, he wasn't the only person who had spoken something that you might call a radical message, and I think it's it's fair to to think of Jesus as someone who's in the line of Old Testament prophets, right? And I would say especially Jeremiah. There, mm. there are, there's a lot of overlap between Jesus and Jeremiah, including being arrested by the religious leaders and Jeremiah almost killed, and Jesus was. And you know when when Jesus warns in Matthew about uh, you know not it's not just hating somebody openly, but hating somebody in your heart, you know, basically, you know, you're fit for Gehenna, which mm-hmm. we sometimes translate as hell. I mean, that's, that's a, a theme from Jeremiah too, mm. where Jared doesn't, he doesn't mean a literal hell under the ground. He means something completely different. But the point is that that's, that's the rhetoric of Jeremiah. And, and you, you can look at Jesus and not know anything about Christianity. Mm. And you can say to yourself, well, here goes another Jew saying what he says. And now that, that I want to really be clear about something too, that doesn't mean there's nothing about Jesus that is, let's say off the page. And I think there is, and sure. the gospels talk about those things as well, where, um, you know, Jesus talks about the forgiveness of sins and that he does it, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, not with Jesus so much, but with Paul, of course, you have how the Gentiles become included in this larger scheme. Not that the Old Testament hates Gentiles, but not to this degree of, of freedom do they come in as Gentiles. There's no conversion necessary. They just become, they just stay Gentiles. So, I mean, you, you have elements of the New Testament, certainly, that portray Jesus and his mission in ways that don't quite fit with uh Jewish teaching. I mean, even something that, you know, all scholars agree resembles Jesus and Jesus said this or did this, but, you know, his talk about, uh, you know, follow me. Yeah, but I have to bury my parents. Well, let the dead bury the dead. Mm. That's deeply disrespectful to your parents, which is a very not Jewish thing to say. And it's so not Jewish, it seems really authentic. Yeah. You know, like, why put that in there? Right. <laughs> you know, if you want people to sort of, if you want people to misunderstand Jesus, you leave stuff like that. You put that stuff in, you don't. Yeah, there was plenty he yeah. said that, that, that created angry mobs that wanted to kill him, for sure. Yeah, and I don't think the angry mobs were like an invention of the gospel writers. Right. 
I, I think he had enemies, and I think the reason he had enemies is because he was he was talking about a, the kingdom of God in a way that both undermined the Greco-Roman system of violence, mm-hmm. like the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, but at the same time undermining a Jewish sort of apocalyptic vision where one day they will be reigning again in Jerusalem over others and they'll have their land back, mm. which, which can only happen through violence. Mm, that's good. And I think Jesus undercut both of those things. And, you know, even when the beautiful parable, that, which is at least in Mark and Matthew, it might be in Luke, I don't remember, but where they're on their way to Jerusalem for Passion Week and two of the disciples, James and John, the brothers, sons of Zebedee, they come to Jesus. When we get to Jerusalem, can we sit on your left and right side? And um, they weren't talking about like, when you're raised from the dead or something like that. They they assumed that they're going to Jerusalem to take over. Right. That's what a Messiah is supposed to do. And, you know, Jesus has to set them straight about that, saying, yeah, can you suffer like I am? Yeah, sure. Yeah, you don't even know what you're saying at this right. point. You know, even in the book of Acts, the, the first chapter of the book of Acts, you have, uh, you know, Jesus appears to the disciples, and they say, is it at this time that, you know, um, I forget how the exact language is, but will the nations be restored to Israel? Mm. Will Israel be put in its right place? And Jesus just sort of says, yeah, well, it's not for me to say, but in the meantime, <laughs> you, know, you have other things to do. So even there, there was an understanding of Jesus as ultimately needing to perform a Messiah role mm. that would be expected, which is, you know, for most people, something of a military Right. Take over. But, you know, that's that that's so against the this these stories of Jesus that and that's a bit counterintuitive, you know, when you're reading these stories. You don't really expect a Jewish Messiah to talk like that. That's right. That's right. Well you mentioned earlier um the concept of Gehenna in a literal hell. And I want to go there briefly with you, but Setting up that conversation, um, first, I want to ask another question is, what is your explanation, um, for lack of a better wording, the problem of evil in this world? <laughs> yeah, we'll just Small knock question. that question out of the way, and then we'll get to because the Because if we're, we're going to talk about hell, we got to talk about evil and why hell. Right. Well, okay, First of all, I mean, just, I, I think, let me just... Original sin. That, original sin? Should we start there? <laughs> or just or just sinfulness. I mean, right. the, the fact that people don't have their acts together, and we do things to ourselves and to each other, and we're not at peace with ourselves. So, yeah, I think, I, I think there are issues of justice that all good theology will expect God to correct. Mm. The question is whether God's correction is retributive or vindictive or whether it's restorative. Mm. And I believe that it's restorative. I believe that God at the end of the day restores after judging. Mm-hmm. You know, people, I mean, just to personalize this a little bit, I, I, I read this not long ago and I just sort of struck such a deep chord with me about, you know, near death experiences and people, tend to have a similar notion of feeling as if 
their deepest, darkest secrets of life are now known. Mm. And those who believe in God say, I felt judged by God, but it wasn't a bad judgment. Mm. It was finally cutting through all the crap and seeing yourself as God sees you. Mm-hmm. See, to me, that's a judgment. But as a judgment that's restorative. It's also, it might produce shame. It might make you cry. It might make you feel really sorry. All that's part of repentance. And mm-hmm. but, but it's a repentance and a judgment that leads to restoration. So no, so no, no punishment in the sense of eternal conscious damnation. I don't think so. No, I don't. I don't think that. I think that does violence to at least parts of the Bible. I can understand why people might get that uh, from the Bible, but again, see, sometimes this is where it gets tricky. The Bible does, even New Testament included, does speak the language of the Judaism at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was an expectation of God setting things right in the somewhat near future. Mm-hmm. And the book of Revelation is like that, where that will come out, uh, come about as a result of violence, some sort of violence. And I think that's the language of the time. To me, that's, that's not much different than, for example, in the Old Testament, where, okay, how do you know God's on your side? Well, you killed a lot of people and you won. That's how you know God's on your side. And God was with us. Yeah, God was with them. And I do think that the cross teaches us something about God that is incompatible with that. Well, that passage in Joshua is incompatible with that, that we talked right. about. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So now, that doesn't mean God doesn't judge. I believe God judges. I believe people will be judged. I believe I will be judged. But whether that judgment leads to restoration or not, to me, that's the bigger question. And for me, I've sort of settled that for myself, but I think it will. Right, right. So then what do you do with Luke 12, 5? And that was another question. I will, but I will, sh- this is Jesus talking, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. What, what yeah, is your... and I, I think, yeah, that is um, a legitimate problem. For what, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure others can sort of maybe try to talk their way out of it. I don't want to try to talk their way out of it. Other than to say... And again, here, I, I don't want to use this as a get-out-of-jail-free card, mm-hmm. but I do want to look at the rhetoric of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and to ask myself, how might something like this fit in Luke's theology as he's writing this Gospel? In other words, and again, I want to tread lightly here, because I don't want to... I don't think this way. I don't want to give the impression that when I run into problems, I just say, well, Jesus didn't say that. Right. But we always we do always have to explore like does something sound Jesus-y or does it not? Does something sound like it might fit in more to a gospel writer's uh, purpose for writing the gospel? Yeah, you know, Matthew is notorious for this too, because Matthew is a pretty violent gospel and a lot of people who I know there's a lot of people who don't like Matthew at all. You know, there's some stuff going on there. Um but Again, I'm, I'm looking at these things because the Gospels are so different from each other. I am now forced to look at them not as simply uh, objective recordings of things Jesus said and did, mm-hmm. but these are 
recordings of what Jesus said and did filtered through the perceptions and traditions of people. And so I have to read this and, wisely. And their culture and their time and where they are. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And again, I, I just I want to be really careful because I, like I said at the beginning, I said, yeah, I think that passage may might be the only one <laughs> in the Gospels, but it's there, you know. Mm-hmm. And then my question would be, if I were talking to this person who raised it, I would say, okay, well, how do you reconcile that with other passages that seem to be more like this is not really on the radar screen, maybe something like John three sixteen, Right, right. And you know, maybe something like Romans 5, where Paul talks about, you know, what Jesus did was, was had an effect on all. Right, right. And well, in, in Colossians, uh, where Paul goes on to say, you know, Christ is all and in all, um, this ultimate yeah. summation and um, universal, you know, perspective uh, of Christ and what he's done. You know, there was another interesting, someone brought up, a, I don't know if it was Brad or, or Brad Jerzak or someone else, said that if we're going to hold on to this doctrine of eternal conscious torment uh, and its important part of the gospel and in, in evangelicalism and in errancy and, and people in those camp hold on to that as part of, part of the gospel message, quote, that they preach... Um, you would go to the scripture and see it very clearly. But the most recent uh, history that we have of people who walked and lived with Jesus uh, preaching the gospel in a New Testament church setting is is the book of Acts. And Mm -hmm. there is no time at all where you hear anyone in the book of Acts, those who walked and talked with Jesus, the apostles, ever preaching the gospel and ever mentioning hell one time. It's just yeah. it's just not there. It wasn't in their vernacular. I thought I thought that was an interesting perspective. I think it is interesting, and and what is coming out for me at least in this discussion we're having here about this hell and punishment and things like that, and you know Luke twelve five is again to remember the inescapable diversity of Scripture itself. Mm. You don't always have. Not every writer covers the same ground. And what one writer might think is important, other writers don't think about at all. Mm. I, I mean, here's the great example. For me, everybody talks about this. Uh, Jesus, born of a woman who had a, um, you know, a, a virginal conception, mm-hmm. which sounds like you know the kind of thing you might want to mention once or twice. But it's in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Mark doesn't talk about it. John doesn't talk about it. Um, Paul, I don't never heard of it. I, mean, I can't imagine Paul leaving something like that out. And that's a really important example mm. to me of how something even, because I do believe in incarnation. I don't really know what that means all the time. <laughs> like, right. who, who actually understands incarnate? But, you know, I just, I believe God with us and I believe it's Jesus and all that. But I, you know, it, it, you can't limit that to two stories. Right. But it has to be something more than that. And the point is that, you know, I think that Paul probably believed something like, you know, Jesus is God incarnate, but he sort of keeps it hidden, though, too. Mm-hmm. You know, he, and in fact, in Romans at the beginning, I think he, he says that Jesus is, according to the flesh, son of David, but declared to be son of God by virtue of resurrection. Mm. 
you could you can make the case reading Paul that for Paul Jesus's divinity is something that is that comes upon him in his resurrection. Mm. That's interesting. Not his birth. Yeah, I mean, and that's why you have that diversity there too. So, but um, yeah, Book well, of Acts and No Hell. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that. That brings us to this question that, that another person asked that I think is really, really interesting because it brings... Where do you it, get these people anyway, Bob? <laughs> well, In? just just a lot of different friends and a lot of different uh, groups I'm, I'm part of online. Um, and, and people listen to your program. And when I throw out the words, hey, I'm going to interview Pete. Is there any question you've always wanted to ask him? And now's the opportunity. Um, yeah. This this is going to hit home from you, and I and I'd love to, I'm I'm excited about this question because I think it'll begin to tie our, our time together. Um, so, biblical scholarship, textual criticism, and the need to interpret everything from its original culture and context um, is that just another form of biblical literalism? If that's how we must interpret everything, where does a devotional or spiritual reading of the text fit in? How how do we take the two at the same time? And do you have personally two different relationships with the Bible, a scholarly one and a devotional one? Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I would say that modern scholarship is another form of literalism because the result of the scholarship does not lead to literal readings of text. Mm. It says this, this is, you know, this, Whatever this means, it can't be understood literally because for X, Y, and Z reasons of antiquity and whatever. So, but I do think modern scholarship is about uncovering history. Fundamentalism equates a literal understanding of scripture with history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And that makes sense. Like, you know, if it says that it happened and modern scholarship doesn't do that. But I understand what, what the questioner is saying that it's just another example of maybe being preoccupied with questions of origins and what it says, you know, and looking at that and taking it very seriously, does that, how is that compatible with a devotional reading of the text? And I think it can be a struggle to keep those together. I think in my own mind, I've made peace with that in part because it's my critical readings of text that have helped me see the theological nature of these texts Mm. and how, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, I'm reading something of the theology of the writer and it actually helps me to know, I mean, I'm throwing out a critical theory here that really isn't disputed, but that the book of Deuteronomy was written in the late seventh century. Mm. At least the first round was written in the late seventh century during a very difficult time in the history of the southern nation of Judah, the northern nation was gone already, and they're going to go into exile within a generation, and they're getting a lot of pressure from the Assyrians, and so uh, it's it's all about maintaining fidelity to the covenant amid these very trying and difficult times of the seventh century. See, that's a critical conclusion. But when I read that, I say, okay, you know, this 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 preaches. Because you can apply this to like very difficult times that we're facing either corporately or even individually. Mm. So those two things, they sort of talk to each other there. And, and, I, and I like that. I'm paying attention to, again, the book of Deuteronomy where um, 
you know, this, this takes place in the logic of the narrative 40 years after the Exodus, when the people have died off mm. and there's a new people and there's a new covenant given they're about to enter the land. And in chapter five, you know, God speaking through Moses says, it is not with them that I made the covenant at Mount Sinai. It's with you, with all of you who are standing here. You were there at Mount Sinai. Well, they weren't. That generation died off. That's the whole point of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But of course, the writer knows that. Mm. Because what the writer is saying is that every generation has to see itself as there. Mm. Every generation has a, an equal stake in what happened in the past. And this, this is a tradition that goes on to Judaism to today. But you see, it's, it's careful and critical readings of text that actually help us see those kinds of things. And for me, that we're at, at this point, we're at the, uh, the 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 place of what I would call devotional readings of text. Mm-hmm. That's good. I mean, one other thing, I think it's an important question. I also think that text can hit us in very creative ways that are not bound mm. by, let's say, the original meaning of a text. That's good. And I think that's another way of of of. Uh, of sort of expressing what it means to have a devotional reading. So, in other words, I have no problem. In fact, I am very, uh, I revel in the idea of how we can read the text and say, this is how this is hitting me. And in that you're communing with God. Mm. And for someone to say, well, that's not what I meant originally. That's off topic at that point, because they're having the experience of God. And, you know, and then it's okay for them to do that. And that doesn't mean you can do anything you want to with the Bible, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, those are complex matters we, we're not going to solve here in a few minutes. But, <laughs> you know, you know well, what I mean? It's just, you know, we can, we, can, we can read devotionally, creatively. That's also the history of Christianity and Judaism. Mm, that's so good. Um, I, that that kind of brings us full circle to maybe some things we, we started with, is that so many... So many of us uh, have read the Bible in certain ways and through the lens of certain constructs that have been extremely helpful and beautiful, uh, but on the other side, it can be destructive, can be damaging. Um, would you recommend, um, God forbid, this is, this is heresy, uh, hmm. that, that, <laughs> that Tell me more. For, Tell some, me more. for some Christians that it might be healthy to actually just not read the Bible for, say, a, oh, year, a, a year, and then just, just yeah. take a break. And come back with new you, you eyes and perspective. Yeah. There's no question about that. I mean, I, I have that conversation with people where, like, even don't go to church for a while. Mm. You know, I mean, talk to younger generations about church anyway. That's like, I'm not sure what church is going to look like in 50 years anyway. But, True. you know, you, you do need a break. You've always been told you have to perform a certain way, and this is what you have to do. But it's doing those things that have left you spiritually dry. So if you keep doing them, is not a good idea. And I do believe that God can speak to us apart from, you know, morning devotions where you push yourself through and go through the motions and think that you need to be good enough for God to be near you. You know, this is why I like contemplative mm-hmm. Christianity. What, what if, what if God is not far off? What if God is in you? Yes. What if the spirit of God dwells in you? Sometimes you can just sit there and don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Try that, and let's let the evangelical, you know, muscles start twitching. <laughs> you're not actually performing; you're just sitting there, and not even consciously praying, but just breathing, 
and just taking in what's around you and yes. being thankful to God for that. Maybe yes. that's the place. Yeah, and that um, goes in line with what we even have recorded as Jesus turned and said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Um, that seems to be in line with uh, many other great teachers and, like you said, contemplatives and mystics that have said, when you do um, stop and you're present and you do breathe and notice what's around you, um, that in itself is God uh, and God is speaking to you. So that's a beautiful thing as well. And it's a healing thing for people, I think. Yeah, well, it's Romans. Roman was it Romans one that says that creation was the first Bible. I, I know I've I heard I've heard uh, Richard Rohr on your on your podcast say, and many other times, do you think God was sitting on his hands for fifteen million years before the yeah, Bible right. was written a few thousand years ago? He had nothing to say. Um, right. I love. I always love that perspective. Yeah. Well, Pete, this has been great, and um, I hope that. This has pushed just maybe a millimeter people to a place of accepting that people read the Bible differently and interpret it differently, and that's okay. Uh, and actually, that's, that's okay, and that's a well good put. thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. Thank God's you. God's not asking you for doing that. Absolutely. Is there anything that you want to leave as far as, do you have any new books coming out? Anything? I know PeteEnds.com is your website. Anything else you want to say what you're working on or, or promote? Well, I mean, we're going to be re-releasing a book. Jared and I, Jared Bias, who's my co-host, uh, we wrote a book a few years ago called Genesis for Normal People, mm. which sort of went out of publication, but now we're actually republishing it and, and going to offer it directly through Amazon. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be happening this fall. And I am I just started writing the Exodus volume for that. It's going to be a series over the years. And uh, so I'm, I'm, that's what I'm working on right now. And apart from that, just podcasting yeah <laughs> well i i just on both ends. I, I just want to say and affirm what you're doing um it's it's beautiful it's wonderful your podcast does not come across as um as too heady it doesn't come across as sarcastic it doesn't come across as bitter it come comes across as very uh very respectful scholarly but nuanced um, and I just love what you're doing and you're helping a lot of people. So, so your work matters, keep doing it. And, and I personally really appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate that. That's very kind. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. Bye.